What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Deer Vein Podcast, and this episode is specifically part of the Whitetail Series segment within my podcast. The Whitetail Series is 27 episodes in total, nine based around the early season, nine based around the pre-rut and rut, and nine based around the late season. So if you're having problems in one of those sections of the seasons, just sit down, binge these episodes. You'll get a lot of tips, a lot of tactics, a lot of strategies, You know, different types of places and areas to hunt and different types to try public land and private land, and you just get a lot of information and hopefully a lot of entertainment. I have guests on here from the Midwest, the East, and the South, so you're gonna it's going to likely retain relevancy for everybody. And then also these podcasts are going to be airing two to four weeks in advance of that section of the season so that you should be able to use the tactics that you listen to this year in your season this fall. So I hope it's a huge value to you guys. I really wanted to do it for myself, and I thought this would be a great share for everybody else. I also have a couple partners with this one, Onyx Hunt and Arrow Hunter Saddles. A couple great companies helping me advertise and push this out to everybody and just hopefully make everybody a better hunter and more successful this fall. Onyx Hunt, if you don't know, is a GPS mapping app where you get satellite maps, uh, topo maps, hybrid maps. It shows public and private land boundaries, which is a big reason that I got it. But uh, you can add waypoints, trails, all that kind of stuff as well. But the biggest reason I got it is because it works offline. A lot of the places I hunt don't have data, don't have service. So I can cache all those maps on my phone, walk around, and I still have all my waypoints. I can still use my GPS. And then as far as Arrow Hunter saddles go, like for me, Arrow Hunter saddles makes the most comfortable saddle, the Kestrel Flex. The Merlin just came out. Um, and if you're getting into saddle hunting or you want to try it, I really encourage you to take a look at them. Like I, like I said, I tried a few different saddles on. And the Kestrel Flex just fit me the best and was the most comfortable. And um, I, I, I really like them and most adjustable. Also, they're 100% made in the USA, which is a phenomenal piece. Um, I'm a big USA supporter. And if I can get keep all those jobs here in the US, I will for sure. So uh, go check those guys out if you're looking into saddles. Also use the code DVAIN10, that's the letter D and then VAIN, then the number's one zero at checkout and you'll get 10% off a saddle. All right. Without further ado, let's hop into the podcast. We're just going to do it. Um, all right, everyone. Today I have Jake Hendrickson of Whitetail Habitat Management. You can find him there only on Instagram because he couldn't figure out that he needed to, like, to make a name for all of his social media accounts right away. So was well, it YouTube and your website? It's Whitetail Evolution. Yeah, Whitetail Evolution for the YouTube and the website, and then Facebook, Instagram is Whitetail Habitat Management. Yeah, <laughs> same, same dude, different names. It's a, it's all right. Yeah, make sure if you're gonna try to start something, <laughs> lock the names down right away. Yeah, dude. I yeah, when I started Deer Vein, I uh, started out with like, all right, is this website open? Is the Instagram open? Is the Facebook open? Okay. <laughs> is all that open? You gotta do the research. And I think at the time it, they all were open, but I didn't lock them down. I didn't like pay for the website yeah. right away then i tried eight months later and it was gone I'm like you gotta ah. be kidding me <laughs> oh, well. dude i know i was thinking about pulling my website and i was just like uh well i better leave it because if i pull it there might be traffic there now and then a bottle pick it up and buy it and then want to sell it back to me for like a 500 that's what it will be so someone will buy it and say well you know we'll sell it back to you for 500 bucks right <laughs> like, yeah so whatever but it's all right, guys. Anyway, Jake Jake has a, a phenomenal company that does kind of private land management and consulting. So what his job is to do is go around, 
figure out, take a look at your property and dissect it, figure out where you want to plant food pots, where you want to set up stands, how you want to enter and access. So he just has a ton of experience in that regard. Is that, am I, am I doing that justice? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's, okay. You, you hit it nail on the head. Okay. So yeah. for all you public land guys, we're going to get into it a little bit here and the differences between public and private, but we're going to spend a lot of time on private land today and, and management and curation and, you know, having those cause public land, a lot of times you can get aggressive cause it really doesn't matter cause someone else might be getting aggressive. Right. Whereas in private, right. private land, if you're the only one hunting it, or you know, the people who are hunting it, you can take, you can take your time a little bit more. You can be a little bit more cautious. You can, you know, wait and say, I don't want to push in and be aggressive today. Maybe I'll wait for that cold front and be there, you know, tomorrow. Whereas on public, you know, they like, shit, that other guy's in the parking lot. I know where he's going. I got to get in there. You know, he's he close. He's a hundred yards from the bedding area. I'm setting up 50, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm pushing in on that guy. So, um, so yeah, that's what we're talking about. Um, so to kick it off and we are sticking with the topic of early season. So to kick it off, let's roll with, what do you want to start with Jake? What doesn't do matter to me. I, I guess like if I were to just be, like talking to, I guess, to anyone here who's maybe potentially just starting out hunting and they don't know where to begin with, you know, putting a stand on a property or, or, you know, where to go for the early season, you know, everything starts with scouting. And so we'll kind of go with, we'll talk about two different things with scouting. The first being like, let's say you, you just got permission in the summer, right? So you, you didn't have a chance to scout it after the previous season. You, you didn't, you don't have any historical knowledge of this property. You're, you're just first going to, you just got access to it. You know, how do you choose where you want to hone in on for early season? And one thing that I really like to start with is, and we kind of talked about this before we started here, but this looking where your property is on a map. So you go to Google map on X, whatever your favorite, you know, satellite imagery website is, and then kind of zoom out a little bit. And so you're looking at your cover and try to find where your cover might connect with neighboring cover. So this is easier to do in maybe mixed agriculture areas where you have cover mixed with ag. So it might be, you know, just open, open fields, no cover, and then cover woodlots. And basically like if you have a neighboring parcel and it kind of pinches down, you know, a little thinner, and then it touches your property, that's one area where I'd be kind of focusing in on just because those deer are going to want to stay in that cover. They're going to want to stay hidden as much as they possibly can. They don't want to go across that field. So when they go from one property to the other, you can start in there. You can start right there. Yeah. And then, then, then you got to just actually, you know, boots on the ground and scout and early season, you know, one of my favorite things to look for is food sources, but you know, here in Michigan, you know, this podcast is tailored towards guys in Michigan. And by October 1st, most of those summer food sources are kind of on the tail end. So I mean, you still might be able to get a little bit of uh, the hay fields. You know, they still might have some deer out there. But as far as like the beans go, a lot of times, like in the summer, you see all those bucks in the bean fields. But, you know, in, in Michigan, October 1st, those beans are yellow. You know, those beans are brown. Yeah. And so they're not really out there nearly so as much and, and they're more back in the timber 
So the, like, one thing I'd be looking for is one of the first thing when you actually like pick a spot to start at, which I like those kind of those pinch points, those con that converging timber is, you know, hard mass trees and soft mass trees and particularly like oaks and apple trees. Like every once in a while you might get lucky, find a pear tree, but for the most part, it's wild apples and oaks. If you can, in white oaks, hands down would be my preference, but I mean, any oak is a good oak. So red oak is still good, but white oak, if you can find a white oak tree that's on like a bumper crop year, that, that's a pretty good spot to start. Okay. And for anybody listening, uh, white oaks have rounded leaves, red oaks have pointed leaves. So yes. that's how you, if you, if you're in an area and you're like, wow, there's oak trees everywhere and there's acorns all over the place. Look for the ones with rounded leaves. That'll get you yep. closer. And I, I hear mixed reviews on that, to be honest with you. Like oh, really? some people are like, ah, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like it, uh, acorns are acorns. And then I have some people okay. who are like, oh no, white oaks like are where it's at. And I've heard, I've actually heard that multiple times is that it's white oaks. I have not found personally, I've not found the difference between the two, Okay. but I also don't like, I don't have an experiment set up where I like have red oaks and then white right. oaks and I set a trail yeah. camera up and figure out, what, <laughs> you know, I just like, you know yeah. what, there's an oak tree on the edge of this swamp. It's dropping acorns. Let's sit here. And honestly, if I right. don't see deer, I don't think like, oh, they don't like these acorns. I don't, if I don't see deer, I just go, maybe they like, maybe I'm just in the wrong spot and they weren't here today. Like, you know, it's entirely, or so many like other acorns somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. There's so many reasons that you fail. So it's like, right. to me, I'm just like, I always just chalk it up as I was in the right spot. As long as the, I have to control the things that I can control. Right my oh, entry sure. and exit yep. and my setup and my scent. Like those are the things that I can control and everything else is right. kind of just, you know, flip of the coin. I hope they come here tonight. Right. Yep. There, there is a little bit of luck involved. You know, you gotta be in the right place at the right time. Like there's a couple different good spots for each day, but you got to pick the right spot. Right. You know? Oh <laughs> so. dude. I, yeah, I, I stare at Onyx for like, my wife probably, she was saying to me the other day, it was opening day in Wisconsin on Saturday. So a couple of days ago yep. and uh, Friday, I was just sitting there staring at Onyx. I was probably on it for over an hour. And she's like, what are you looking at? <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm playing out, I'm playing out scenarios in my head, get off my case. Uh, you know, just leave me alone. Like you, I, I don't. And we've done this for so many years that I'm just like, don't even bother me. Cause I can't even explain yeah. it to you. Cause you won't understand. And you just give me shit about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I ended up picking a pretty decent spot. I actually didn't, uh, I, I picked the edge of, of a swamp and a, just like high ground. So okay. when I come in, um, it was only about 20, 30 minutes off the road it was a really mm -hmm. nasty walk. So everything was grown up. The trail wasn't mowed or anything like that. And there's a lot of multiple rows and burdock and other crap that Ooh, you have to walk nasty. through, which was actually really yep. nice. I, I wore my hip boots because it had rained so much in Wisconsin. Um, I was thinking, cause you have to cross a Creek to get, to get to this spot. I was thinking that Creek would be real high and the hip boots, the rubber actually fended off pretty much all the, all the like little stickers um, yeah. in the burdock and, and a lot of that crap, which was really nice. 
Um, and then the creek ended up being dry anyway. Like, <laughs> I was okay. just like, shit. So, whatever. But, um, but I saw eight deer on, on public. I had set up on this, on this edge. Um, I was probably like 40 yards from the cattails in the tree line. Like if I had video of it, I'd show it. I didn't even take any, but uh, you could see that the water line is usually about a foot and a half to two feet up these trees. All the bases of these trees were Brown, like dark right. Brown. Right. And then I had all these deer coming in off like an Island that was out on the swamp and they were coming into this high ground and I promise I'm tying this back into acorn somehow. <laughs> and I know yeah. we're getting there. We're that getting there. they right. <laughs> so they're they're coming out of this like swampy area, which is what I was hoping for. And I had my objective or the reason I was there was because um like if I'm coming into a parcel, ah, it's hard to explain this in a pot like in a podcast verbally, right? Right. So I'm coming north, I'm coming straight west into the parcel. I'm on high ground. It just drops off literally just like a, a 10 foot drop. Um, okay. And it, and that is like the line where the water line stops. So we haven't had a lot of water, so there's not a lot of water there. Um, and then I get up in a tree right on that line where it drops off and becomes all tall grass because nothing else grows there. Cause it's always floods. And I had to walk through a right. bunch of uh, like older, more mature trees, which, which were like the Oaks. And I know there's more Oaks like behind me from that direction. So I was trying to catch them coming out of that swamp and up into those oaks. And uh, there's like uh, just a brushy point of poplar trees that are all pretty young yet. And there's probably like 30 to 40 of them. And every single one has a rub on it, like everyone. So it's just an annual spot where the bucks come in and they'll just rub that on their way into those oaks. So that's what I was watching. That was about 60 yards from me. And I was hoping that I'd catch them getting that rub and then coming through and then going up Mm -hmm. to those, those oaks, all those does did exactly what I'd hoped for. Um, They just, I just uh, like, they just came through and I just, one, I went to shoot and my bow hanger was in the way and I just don't want to talk about it. So we'll just move on, but we won't uh, go there. But yeah, no, I was waiting for that, waiting for that good buck, but he never came through. Um, But anyway, that was, that was my opener story, but I was hunting. I wasn't hunting the oaks directly within line of sight, but I knew where they were. And I generally knew where the deer wanted to go and past those oak oaks were soybeans and hay fields and things like that. Here's a, here's a question for you. So a good friend of mine shot a really nice buck on opener and it was the third buck on, and this is September 12th. It was the third buck out to a cornfield to eat standing corn. And that he was the, yeah. there were two that were already in there in front of their front of him feeding. I hadn't really like, I've never had that experience. Like, like eating corn this early. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I'm, I'm not sure why they're doing it right now, but I think, I think the corn might be, might be drying out. Yeah. Sooner because I think, I think when it's younger, like I have never, I don't plant corn on this property. We do up North, but I'm not really up there feeling it. But like when it's younger, it's, I'm pretty sure it's softer and it's more moist, but you know, as it gets older, it hardens up. And I think that's when they want it. They want it when it's harder. And, and normally that happens kind of like late October, yeah. early November, but I'm thinking it happened earlier this year. Maybe we didn't have as much rain. If that had something to <laughs> so do with dry. it, but I know they're cutting the corn around here right now. So the corn is ready to be cut already. Are they, are they like chopping it like silage? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know they were ch- they're, they're chopping around here too, and it's just pretty. It's just it's been so dry. It's early. Yeah. Yeah, it's early. It is super early. Oh. Yeah, all my goose hunting friends are loving it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All those geese are coming into the village. <laughs> right. Um. So so scouting is the first point, and it's kind of going around the boundaries almost to where it would connect to a neighboring woodlot, right? Or on either right, side of the property or wherever. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of a yeah. general starting point. And then it's, and then it's scouting and figuring out where you want to sit. So, you know, opening, opening night, October 1st, this is going to air September 28th, three days before opener yeah. for you guys. What are yeah. like, what's going through your brain and what are you, what are you looking at? How are you picking where you're going to sit? So in the early season, I'm, like so if i want to sit the opener just to sit the opener that i'm going to be probably focusing on for any hunt and like you want to be focusing you know where are they bedding where are they feeding and then depending on if it's a morning hunt or a night hunt that'll determine like what where you're going to sit so normally if you're going to be hunting in the morning you know there's a good chance they're going to be out in those fields or in their destination food source and so you want to be hunting closer to the bedding areas and catching them when they're coming back and then the opposite for the afternoon, you, you have a pretty good idea that they're going to be in those bedding areas. And so you don't want to get too close to those bedding areas. And so you're going to be sitting more on that movement, like the deer trails, connecting the bedding areas to the food sources. And so that's okay. kind of where you're setting up. But there's one thing I will say about the early season is a lot of times, like it, depending on what you're targeting, it really depends on what you're targeting. But if, if, so if you just want to shoot a deer, you can probably get closer to those doe bedding areas and you can probably catch those does coming back. But, but if you're trying to shoot an older buck an older is relative, it really depends on your area. But if you're trying to shoot one of the older deer in your area, you, you sh- probably should not be hunting the bedding area in the morning because during the, the early season, you know, they're, they're not really moving a whole lot during the day. Like they're moving in their bedding areas. And they're getting back there pretty darn early. So it's normally during the dark. Like you're, you're, you can get back there. Sometimes you can beat them, but you know, he's not going to be probably walking by your stand and the chances that you're going to bump him out of there are pretty good. So I would, if it was me, I would be saving my sit for like an afternoon set, some sort of a sit. If you have an opportunity, if you have a good idea where the does are betting and where the bucks are betting, if you could get in between there without alerting them what's going on, that's probably where I would sit because he's going to move and he's going to move to that food source at night, but it's, it's going to be later in the day. Like it's going to be later than usual. Like it, when you, when you normally see him like October 20, that's normally when most people start seeing those older bucks start moving on their feet mm-hmm. like during daylight, but yeah. you still have a chance in the early season. It, it's, he's just going to be moving a little bit later and, you you'd probably you don't want to be hunting them in the morning. It just it's just you have a lower chance. Like it's all yeah. probability, and so you just have a lower chance doing it in the morning, and you're putting yourself at risk of bumping him out. And then if you bump him out, then you know if he runs to your neighbors, then you almost have to wait for your neighbor to bump him back to you or something <laughs> like that. Or, sure. or he could even keep going down. Like he's got a big home range, but and if and if his core area happens to be on your property you just don't want to mess up his core area. You know, that's kind of like yeah. his little sanctuary. You want to, you want to let him have his little spot. Just, you don't want him yeah. to know that you know he's there. And that's part of that. I, 
I would totally agree. And that's part of that private land being, being able to be a little bit more cautious, right? Right. If, if it, it was public land, go for it, right? Right, yeah. Because someone else is going to go for it. If someone else is, if you think that someone else has a chance of going, going in there, then you need to go in there and get in there early and set right on top of them. Right. And ho hopefully he comes <laughs> in and he comes in right where he's supposed to and you can shoot him. And then if you happen to bump him, you know, that sucks, but try to find out where he went and then chase after him. But yeah, private land, that, that's the, that is the one disadvantage with private land because if I bump that deer, he's gone. You know, he's, he probably won't come back. You know, during the rut, there's a good chance he's going to come back if he's not already dead. He'll chase the doe through or he'll get curious. He'll, he'll remember that this was a nice property to look for does and he'll come back through. But if, he was, if that's his core area and I go in there early on an early season morning sit and I kick him out, that, there's just a really good chance he's not going to come back for a while. I think that I think that has to do with a lot in the terms of how much pressure is on the property too. Like if I, he doesn't come back or if he does, like if you're in a really low pressure area and he oh, and he bumps sure. and he's not having a like he he he's still he's like oh okay my bedding area worked there was danger I got out it's safe like I can come right. back it's it not a big deal. But but if you're in a high pressure area and you're the you know you've you've been in there and and he knows like someone's trying to kill me and you bump him right yeah he's not he's probably not coming back until the rut when he's like all right i'm not i'm not worried about my life right now i'm just trying to get some right yeah and i i agree yeah. with you 100 percent on how it, it really matters kind of the type of a deer you're hunting we used to live in an area um in, around grand rapids michigan it was a, right next to a county park and everyone around us had like two to five acres of cover woods. And it was a lot of oaks, a lot of pines. It was a, a pretty good spot. And we could, we could hunt there if we wanted to, but the deer, no one hunted, no one there hunted. And there was deer all over the place. And we had, when it was legal, we had a feeder like 50 yards from our window. And so we just yeah. had that thing going all the time. And there were deer in our backyard nonstop. And it didn't matter <laughs> what I was doing. I could, I could walk back to the pole barn, you know, 30 yards away. They just watch me, just make sure I didn't cross the line that they knew that, okay, once he gets to here, I'm going to take off. They right. didn't care. Like my yeah. dog, my dog would sit right on the edge of the yard <laughs> and watch him from 20 yards away. And those deer would just eat the corn and look at my dog. So, <laughs> but here, if I even open the slider, they're gone. <laughs> like they, they don't tolerate anything around here. They're probably, they're so used to road hunters. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh man. Um, yeah. That'll do a number for you for sure. Road hunters. Um, so you mentioned, you mentioned like trying to, well, first of all, I want to cover the AM versus PM. Like what sure. would tell you that you want to like hunt in the morning versus the evening? Like what would, what would tell you, Wow, I really need to get in there in the morning. So I would say in the morning is when they start the pre-rut. Like once the pre-rut starts, starts going on, those bucks are like a lot of like, if you look at some of the studies, I don't know what university does it, if it's University of Pennsylvania, but they just collar bucks and yeah. then they'll kind of watch them all, all year long. And then they'll kind of see like how close he stays to his home range in the morning. And then once it hits a certain, like October 15, October 20, it really depends on the buck, I think, too, like how 
cautious he is, but right around the 20th, for sure, they'll start like leaving their home range a little bit more and, and staying away from it. Not their home range, sorry, their core area. They'll, they'll stay away from it a little bit longer. And so it takes them a little bit longer okay. to get back to that bed. And then gotcha. you just have an, more of an opportunity. And, you know, they're just going to be out moving around more, you know, freshening up their scrapes, checking their yeah. scrapes, making sure that those other bucks aren't over there. So you just have a greater opportunity. It's like, you know, like we said before, probability, plan the odds. Sure. You just have a greater chance of not alerting that deer, and he's going to be moving more. So th those yeah. two factors, you just have a better chance. And one way that if you have this property and you've had it for a long time, one way you can really do a good job of, like, figuring out when that is for your piece of property is trail cameras. You know, if you have a you know certain amount of trail cameras on your property, and just save every single buck picture from the minute you put those cameras out, and you know never delete them. Then every year, just go back or make an Excel spreadsheet and just start going through your buck pictures. Okay, it's night, it's night, it's night. Okay, there's a daylight picture, night, night, and then right around this property right here, it's right around the 18th that we've only had it for. Um, this will be our third hunting season two and a half we only hunted it last year so i'm just really going on one year's data but right around the 18th that's when those older bucks started cruising around a little bit more during daylight because if they're going if they're walking around at night even if it's like 10 minutes after shooting light that doesn't really do anything for me because right. i can't shoot, can't them. shoot them and two i'm, <laughs> I'm probably going to bust them when i leave leave the woods because they're they're walking right past my stand as I'm getting down. So right. I, I just do more harm than good. So if you have an opportunity to use trail cameras and just keep that information, that's just one way. It's not going to be an exact science, but it, it's no. just a gauge. It's just no, a gauge I, that you yeah. can use. 100% agree. Like I had, uh, as far as the trail cameras go, because I used to, I had three trail cameras that are pretty, that were pretty well hidden on public. And I had them on scrapes that were pretty far back. Um, yep. And there were specific days. It was kind of like from October 5th to like the 18th. It was just all small bucks like every year. And then all yep. of a sudden the 18th would hit and I'd get two or three mature bucks. And it usually yep. would coincide with some sort of weather front. Really. Okay. Usually yeah. Coincide with, it was like the 18th, 19th or 20th. One of those three days those big bucks were getting in there as long as it coincided with some sort of weather right. event. And it didn't matter if it was a cold front or just a rain and then stop raining. Like it didn't, yeah. it didn't matter. It was just something different. And they were, they were there. Yeah. Like I feel like, yeah, for scrapes, like they're, they're going to make those scrapes, you know, right away when the season starts, they're going to start, you know, rubbing and scraping, but they're going to make more scrapes when the pre-rut starts and then they're going to start checking their scrapes more often. So like you said, like if there's a rain and they think yeah. that that scent might get washed out of that scrape, they're going to go and check that scrape when the rain stops. Yeah. So that's a, that that's a sense. great time to hunt a scrape. <laughs> yeah. Right after the rain. If you, if you just, if you have your radar on and you say, okay, in 20 minutes, this rain's going to stop, go get soaked and right. sit there and then just wait. <laughs> so, yeah, for sure. Um, so, that was another thing for my opener. It was raining almost the whole day and it had almost been raining the whole week. That's another reason why I thought that Creek was going to be full. And like mm -hmm. Saturday, the opener was the day it kind of like stopped and freed up. And there was a lot of, 
it's seeming like Facebook is telling me that big bucks were shot every single place <laughs> in, in Wisconsin, right. but underneath my tree. Um, yeah, social media, man, that can get you in trouble. When you start going <laughs> right? that looking at everyone's pictures. Dude, I, I have to like, I have to tell myself like that is what I just looked at was 15 buck pictures out of the hundred thousand bow hunters. So right. like Very it's only 15. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you said something earlier and I want to want you to elaborate on it. You said, if, if I'm hunting early season, if I'm hunting the opener to hunt the opener, yeah. Why, like, why wouldn't you hunt it? Like, or, or what, what do you mean by that? Okay. So it, it really, again, this, well, this is kind of come, coming back to depending on what your goals are. So everyone is at a different, um, stage and I guess their hunting journey and where they are, what their goals are. And if, so if you're someone that wants to shoot a deer, shoot a buck, doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. Then I would definitely hunt the opener because you have a pretty good chance of, of accomplishing that goal. As long as you're in the right place, you know, then you can probably even get back in those bedding areas in the morning. You can probably hunt the food source in the afternoon, but if you want to target an older deer, Sometimes, like I said before, hunting in the morning wouldn't be a good idea because you risk bumping him. And even on the opener, hunting a food source, it could be a low probability chance just because, like you said, you notice more deer movement after a weather event, whether that's a cold front or after a rain. And, and you know, that, that goes, that's the same thing for those older deer. The, the more significant a weather change, the more likely chance that they're going to be moving and so if it's like an 80 degree day on an opener you know you can probably not go or what you can do is if you have them in the right places you can you still hunt like I love to hunt the opener if, if I'm able to but I, I'll just sit in a stand that I know that there's a very low chance that I'll actually see the deer that I want to target but I can just kind of see what else is going on you know are these sure. deer moving are they coming out where I want them to come out? You know, it, it more like what's called an observation sit. I think that's a lot of people yeah. call them as observation sits. And so again, I mean, you can shoot a, a, a nice buck any day of, of the year, you know, during the season, any weather, it doesn't matter. It can be 30 mile an hour winds, 80 degrees. You could shoot that 12 point. It's not very likely, but you could do it. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's always good to be in the woods, but you don't want to take your chance on that that stand that you want to sit in in two weeks because every, every property has a little bit of a cool down period and, and you, you just don't want to go into an area that in, and muck it all up when you, you probably don't have a good chance of, of accomplishing your goal sure. at that time. That's kind <laughs> no, of what I meant by. I, yeah. And I kind of got the feeling that that's what you were thinking. And it's something that I think a lot of people tend to overlook is the significance of like burning out a stand or, or entering on poor, poor probability days. So like, you know, let's just, I would think that you tell me how, you tell me that I'm wrong here. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, but, but I would think like on an 80 degree day, like a South Southwest wind, it's been 80 degrees for the last six days it's like, you know, there's no change in weather. There's nothing to go and it's opener. The odds of you seeing uh, that buck that you're after are like less than 1%. Yeah. 
And if you go into your like best stand and you leave all your scent in there, you leave your scent in that stand, you enter and exit that area. And even if you have a great entrance and exit area, you're still like putting your putting a, a slight amount of pressure in there. Like the deer are going to figure out that they're there. You're there. They know what the they'll hell figure you're it out. Yeah. They'll figure yeah. it out. But the fact that you're putting it in on such a low odd day when, when you could wait four days or five days and it's going to go from 80 to 62 as a high. And you're going to get a change from a South wind to a Northwest wind. And you can just wait and hold off until that's the right time. Then you get in right. there and that's going to go take your odds from like less than 1% to maybe like 10 to 15% or something like that. Yep. Yep. You're right on with that. Yep. Okay. That, that's well, how I've, I look at it. Yeah. No, my yep. odds, like, I don't know if my odds are right. Cause like 10%, that means one in 10 sits, you're going to kill that deer, which is probably not true. It's probably more like yep. less than 1% to like 5% or four. <laughs> yeah. But that's still um, a huge increase. You know, that's a pretty big yeah, increase. Yeah. It's still four to 10 times higher. Like the odds are so much higher. So then based on that information, when you're, when you're kind of like this, so this is what I've been doing is because you have, um, because those bigger bucks are more likely to move on those weather events in the early season, I'm trying to, when I find like really good spots and I want to sit them, I intend on sitting them with a Northwest or a North or a Northeast wind, because it's very likely that that's when that weather front's coming. So that's how I try to set it up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know we were talking before on your property and it sounds like you have a very similar approach. Cause if you, you were like, I, if I get a North wind, I can get down into this corner and that's where I think I'm going to kill that deer. Right. Yeah. Cause you, yeah, the colder air is coming from the North. And so that's typically when you're going to like the Northwest North, sometimes the Northeast. And so the bottom part of my property, I've got stands for every scenario and they're all along that same trail. It's a heavily, heavily used trail. And so any wind that's coming out of the north, that's, just, that's most likely going to be like the post cold front wind. I can get in there and, and hunt it. Right. So cool. Yeah, so I, you're right. You, you definitely want to have a stand ready for different scenarios because you don't want to get to that, that cold front drop in, on like October 24. And then your stand is set up for northeast or northwest only and then have it be the opposite. And then if it's right. blowing the other way, you're told it's screwed. You know, so you yeah. want to make sure you have at least a couple stands set up for different types of wind scenarios. Yep. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think that's, I think you, you hear a lot of hunters saying like, I'm going to my stand. Like you probably hear that all the time and they have, like, I used to one. do that. I used yeah, to do that. I've, oh man. I've, I've, I don't know. Like I've never done it and it's not because like, I just, I just never had like my stand. I've never like, I was never given that opportunity to have my stand. So I never like did that. Um, most of the time, honestly, like growing up, I was, I was the driver. They'd be like, Anthony, go, we're doing a deer drive. Who's in it. You, you're starting here and you're walking over here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, or my buddy's dad all the time, he'd be like, well, you know me, I, I'm, I'm walking every morning. Like he does, he does not like to sit. He'll sit for 30 minutes and he'll start walking yeah. and we'll sit down and he'll plan out. This is on my friend's property. It's it, at the time it was probably over 300 acres they had leased and they had permission and here and there and whatever we'd sit down the night before everyone come in pick their stands 
And then one of the owners would be like, all right, I'm starting on the East end and I'm going to the West. You know, that's how it's going to happen. And he would get ready. Yep, yeah. And he would, he, and he's like, I'm starting at seven 30. <laughs> you know, like, oh yeah, yeah. He starts like right away and he would inevitably set me up somewhere close to him so that he'd pick me up and he'd be like, come on, you're coming with me. And he would just be like, Oh, there's usually bucks in that real nasty multiflower rose over there. You should go walk through that. Go ahead, Anthony. Go, go get cut up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, all right, to get to get a little back on track, which is uh, <laughs> um, people. A lot of people say like my stand. So um, having multiple stands, you know, four, six, eight, twelve stands that. Not, and you don't even need to have like that many stands because that's a lot of money, right? Setting up 12 tree stands is a lot of money. So just right, having, yeah. maybe having a mobile setup or maybe having um, stand locations where you're, you're even set, setting up ground, like, like makeshift ground blinds, right? Just out of deadfall yep. or something. Yeah. Just, just areas where you can attack that based on a south wind or a north wind or an east wind or a west wind, whatever it is, like you have opportunity regardless of the wind so long as it's a change in weather. Yep. That's one, like, it's so interesting. I have never hunted out of one, but you hunt out of a tree saddle, right? That's what I see on your social media, <laughs> you a tree saddle. Yeah, yeah we're that sponsored seems, by I've Arrow, never done Arrow, Arrow Hunter Saddles, oh. everybody. <laughs> okay, yeah, that, that sounds so cool. And like right now, most of our stands are ladder stands just because like I hunt with my dad and his cousin and then one of his buddies. And so they're getting older. And so I want to make sure when I set my property up that it's everything is like very safe for these yeah. guys when they're climbing up. And, but, but once they kind of maybe transition to more into like the houses, I think I want to get into more of the, the saddle hunting. I think that looks so cool. Is it comfortable? There, yeah. Oh yeah. So okay. like, it's not, so as I always tell people, like, if you imagine a, a tree stands, a 10 out of 10, like a saddle yep. is like, so saddles are like, pairs of boots just because a pair of boots fit me really well doesn't mean it's going to fit you really well right so right. like having adjustability and having customization is is really key to a saddle so if you get saddles that have like uh like straps that are just like everything's fixed and you can't adjust a lot of it then then yeah. that that probably it's unlikely that's going to make you all that comfortable so like right. arrow hunter, the, so I had the tethered mantis, which was tethered's first saddle that they came out with. Um, I had that one and it had a fixed bridge that was so, which means it's the, it's the rope that goes from your left hip to your right hip. And it's essentially, okay. it's like a lineman's, you know, when you're in your safety harness and you wrap your lineman's around the tree to hang your stand or whatever. It's like yeah. that, but yep. it was fixed size. So like I couldn't adjust it at all. So then I ended up buying an arrow hunter saddle and that one had an adjustable bridge. So like the te that tethered mantis, um, it was kind of like after about an hour and a half to two hours, it was giving me a wedgie. Um, so then I switched to the arrow hunter and it had that adjustable bridge, which made me be able to adjust it. So it doesn't give me a wedgie. And it also, okay. it's like a longer saddle in general. So it wraps like I got... I have like a big ass. I did a lot of squats in high school and college. Yep. <laughs> so like it, it's just longer. So it comes around my ass a little bit better. Yep. Um, but like the, the mantis was just shorter. 
So, but at the same time, like I have a friend who's just a fucking stick and that mantis mm-hmm. fits him great, you know? So he, he really likes it. He's got no problem with it. Um, so again, it's kind of about, as far as the comfort goes, it's the saddle, but then it's also your capability to find a comfort level. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so like if a tree, if a tree stands a 10, if you're good with a saddle, a saddle's like a nine, nine and a half. So it's not like, yeah, like it's not like some massive drop. Like I can sit in a saddle. Um, like I sat in a saddle for three hours the other night, not a problem not not an issue it's usually like the longest i've ever sat in it is seven hours um okay but i also had deer around me for almost all seven hours so it really didn't matter (laughs) it really like i had good deer around me good bucks so it i couldn't i couldn't say that like it's comfortable for that amount of time because i just really wasn't caring (laughs) at all like i was gonna be there regardless of if it was comfortable or not um so so yeah, that like, I, I, yeah, I mean, you can definitely try it and mobile setups are like, you can get one with standing sticks, like the lone wolf mm-hmm. setup. I use that all the time. I actually yeah, have, yeah, that's what, we've got some of those. Yeah. And I have a friend who even on private land, he runs a mobile setup because he has a few, like, so there's eight hunters who hunt the property and they don't all like communicate. Like it's almost like a mini competition between all eight of them. So like, so, but they're all, they're all able to use each other's stands, but like they don't share like trail camera information and it's not like hostile. It's just like, don't ask, don't tell if that makes any sense. So, um, so they, they, they kind of all go out and they have, they each have their own like stands, but everyone's allowed to sit in them and it's totally cool. Um, but he has his like, quote unquote like mini honey holes that he likes and he doesn't hang a stand there on purpose because he doesn't want other people sitting in those areas so he'll he'll mobile hunt on the private um and kind of it's almost like managed pressure on on private ground (laughs) it's like i you know it's like kind of a public land feel but private ground as well and then like the neighboring piece that they (laughs) yeah oh dude and the neighboring piece that they have rights to to hunt like they have permission to hunt is also given to like an additional four or five people so like they don't even know what the hell's going on over there like he pulled in the other day yeah he pulled in the other day to it and there was a another vehicle there and he had never seen it before in his life and he's been hunting this for 30 years and he's like who the hell is this like and where are they and he had no clue and he still and he got and he went out there um and the truck was there and he went out at like four o'clock or something and it got dark at 7 30 he came back and the truck was gone and he's like i don't know who the hell that was so right who yeah who knows but um but yeah, having, having those, like a, a mobile, like even to get back on that topic of tree stands, it's like just having a mobile setup anyway, so that you can, yeah. you can move or even like, like it, you don't have to be in a tree, right? You can be on the ground and yeah. be successful. You can be on the ground. Yeah. It's harder, yeah. but you be on the, in, on the ground. Yeah. It's just, it's about managing your cover a little bit better and managing your movement 
and all that jazz and being able to shoot at different angles. And it, it, I, I, I definitely agree. It's harder, but if you, if you don't want to put the money into it or you don't know if it's a good spot or not, like build a ground blind out of deadfall and see what happens, yep. you know, and then you're not yeah, putting I've done that money into it. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, I think everybody, every, every hunter's done that and I've had great success. Oh, yeah. One of my best, God, it's a public land deer. I wish I would have been able to kill. I sat like in a tree in a downfall tree. Um, and I was looking straight, like whatever I was looking ahead of me and a buck came from my back, right. And I'm a right-handed shooter. If he would have come from my back left, I would have been able to oh, get him. That's, that's a tough shot. Yeah, Dude, a tough and shot. I was on the ground and I was just stuck. And he was, he was a beautiful 13 point non-typical on public. Like, give me a fucking oh break. Like, he wasn't that he wasn't huge because I was he came to seven yards. I mean him and I were almost like it seemed like we were eye to eye. <laughs> like he was just walking right at me and he just like stopped and looked yeah. at me. I was like, you I wow. can't do anything. You know, I literally can't do anything because you're gonna see me do anything. Um so I just I just had to just yeah. watch him and he and he he got seven yards and he stopped and he was looking right at me and then he just turned and ran away, right? He was like, Holy shit. <laughs> you know? Yep. That's um, not right. Yeah. But uh but the to keep keep moving on off that off that blind. If if you're so you mentioned hay fields, acorns, apple trees. If you're planting food yeah. plots, I know, I know you specify food plots for your, for your clients and stuff. What are you looking at for the early season? If people want to do this, e even just next year, like, man, I need to put in a food plot. What would you say to do? Like what type of food plot or what do you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I, what do you the, plant? The type of food. So I, I plant, um, we've got a brassica blend on about half of our, uh, uh, food plot acreage. So like half our food plot is brassica, half our food plot is clover. And I would say like right now, we just now stopped um, going back there and I haven't checked cameras. I can't really see very far back there. So I can't really tell what they're hammering, what they're not. But last year, based on pictures, they, they really started hitting the clover first and then they start hitting the brassicas later. And, and that's pretty common because the brassicas have more of a, I think a bitter taste, you know, when it's warmer, but once that first frost hits, you know, the, the sugars start getting, they start pumping through the leaves. And then that's when the brassicas start becoming more appetizing. But it, it also depends on how big are your plots and how many deer are in your area. So it's, there's a few variables. So it's, it's tough to, to really say like, this is what you should plant, you know, no matter what, because if you have a, a high deer density area, if you plant, let's say an acre of brassicas or soybeans, like they could mow them to the dirt before it even starts. Okay. It says the internet is unstable. Are you, can you still hear me, Anthony? Yeah. Yeah. I can hear you. Oh, you're good. Okay. Just making sure I want to make yep. sure you can still hear me. All right. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so it, it, there's, there's a few variables there. Like in this location here, the, the deer density is, is not super high. I would say it's below average. So we can get away with planting smaller plots in more of the brassica mixes because the deer don't mow them down. But you know, up north, we have another property that if we planted brassicas, they tend to mow them down. So we have to either plant more, more brassicas if we want that field to stay 
just brassicas or we need to give them something else to kind of munch on beforehand. So we do, you know, clover and brassicas. Um, and if it's a, if it's a really good um, acorn year, if our, a lot of the trees have like a bumper crop of acorns, then they'll kind of lay off the food plots for a while. So that, that kind of helps the brassicas reach maturity. Okay. But, so it, I would say if you have a high deer density area, then you want to plant something that's more browse tolerant. And so the browse tolerant, you know, stuff that's going to be more early season would be your clovers and your maybe like, and then when you start getting into the later season, you can really dump just a ton of rye, winter wheat, cereal rye, that stuff is, that'll grow like crazy. And it, it's, I don't know if it's not like the, the most nutritious form, like the protein content isn't as high, but it's, uh, it, it grows, it's green and they like it. It's a great soil builder. So Okay. Oh, no, yeah. Question. But like, yeah, there's, there's lots of different um, seeds depending on the scenario. So like early season, like for you guys, when the, the season starts on the 15th, beans are still really, really good. You know, the, the beans are still green. They're still out in those fields. They're, they're even potentially still kind of in bachelor groups depending on the deer. Yeah. But, you know, October 1st, beans are yellow. And if, if you planted the beans, that's okay that they're yellow because you can leave them standing. And then you have a, right. then you have a food source for the late season. But normally, like, like we hunt next to an ag field, if it's ever planted in beans, we know that we don't really need to, we don't have, we can't do much about it because it's, they're yellow, they're brown, they're going to get cut the next week anyways. And then it's, then he plants more of like a, uh, a winter winter wheat or cereal rye something like that this is a winter cover crop but then those yeah. deer go out into that so we, okay. we kind of luck out there because he kind of like helps us out there yeah um so essentially what i'm hearing is that if you're trying to kill a deer let's just say there's a ton of pressure in your area you have a small piece of private right you got 10 yep. acres of private 15 acres yep. of private or less and there's a lot of pressure and you're trying to kill deer in the early season, planting clover is probably the way to go because like that I like clover. Yep. isn't going to hit. Right. And, and yeah. that'll give you better odds in the early season. Whereas yeah. and they'll get that clover in the snow. Like I've had it before where it's snow is over the clover and they're digging at it. So the clover okay. is still there. It's not really growing anymore, but they'll, they'll still dig at it and try to eat it. So okay. especially if you're, throwing cereal rye into your clover, that's going to germinate and that's going to start coming through. So they'll actually like go down through the clover and start eat, eating that young cereal rye. And Is that cereal so rye you, something you can still do this year yet? Absolutely. Yep. So yeah. it'll, it'll grow down to 30 degrees ish, okay. you know, maybe 30, 35 degrees. And it, that's, when it, that's when it germinates. And so every time the temperature will get above that, it'll continue to grow. And so that, gotcha. that's why like, a lot of people use that as like their fail-safe food plot seed. I'm in um, like a Facebook group of the Michigan. So this, so this is in Michigan. So any listener here, I would join this group. It's, it's an awesome group to be a part of, especially if you own private land. I think it's Michigan Quality Deer Habitat. And there's like 3,000 members and it's nothing but habitat and it's nothing but Michigan. So it's, it's pretty cool. And everyone just bounces ideas off each other nonstop. And, you know, that's one thing that people will plant a lot is, is cereal rye because it'll grow basically anywhere and it grows down to, you know, 35 degrees 
and it, and it continues to grow. It'll grow in February if it gets up to 35 degrees. Okay. So as long as you don't oh, have yeah. snow on the ground, ice, they'll, they'll be going down to get that cereal rye. Okay. Yeah. I know from Pat last year, um, and I, my, the people who listen to this podcast, like habitually or every episode know this already, but last year, um, three of my four target bucks were shot between October 25th and November 5th by the neighbors. So like, that's essentially when they start hunting. So on my property, I'm really trying to kill a deer before then. Otherwise the odds of them being able to get one. Are right, that's when they start hunting. They start hunting okay. in like October 25th. They're, they're all retired. Um, and they just don't go in early season. They just leave it all kind of sit and they just go in, you know, kind of that pre-rut rut phase. Yeah. They'll just hunt that time frame. They don't even really hunt. And I've talked to them all. They're super nice dudes, like good on them to kill those deer, right? Um, it's right, just, right. Like if I have oh, really good deer on camera, like I need to get my ass out. We got to figure, yeah, figure out how to get those deer in front of you before yeah, them. Yeah, or bo- yeah, or before them, which last year, like I had the opportunity, I just totally botched, like, well, I didn't totally botch it. I sat in a brand new spot, didn't trim lanes because it was a brand new spot. I just, ha- I did a hang and hunt and right. a, my, my number one target buck just walked right behind all the, all the only, the only stuff that I couldn't shoot through. Right. So I had a window. At him. <laughs> that, that's why he's old. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. I, exactly. So, uh, anyway, um, so yeah, this year I was, I was interested in planting a plot. So I did plant a clover plot. Um, and that's, that was my, my thought process there was just trying to get them there earlier in the season rather than later, like planting brassicas is great for, as I understand it, like late October, mid no through like, yeah, you know, essentially through the rest of the January and February, like yep. that's yep. when they're after them. Right, but it's not that early season food plot that you're looking for. Not no, not normally. Our we planted maybe an acre and a half of brassicas up north, and they didn't really start touching them until really late in the season. So kind of like almost December, which is yeah. it's kind of sometimes it's hit or miss though. Like last year must have been like a, a bumper crop for acorns because they must have been in the timber eating the acorns when Nebraska was starting to grow. Cause some years when you plant that stuff, they just mow it down to the dirt or, right. or maybe the dope population, you know, was lower last year. So they, you know, it wasn't as much to, to harm the, the crop, but last year we, it, it grew great and they, but they didn't, they didn't touch it really until, until December. So yeah. you mean, you get, you get nice big bulbs when they let it grow, but yeah, it's a, it's a later late season food source. Got it. Um, so Tell me about, this is a question uh, I've been wondering, and we talked about it a little bit before the podcast. For everybody listening, we talked for like 30, 45 minutes. I just had to hit the record button and say we got <laughs> to actually talk about stuff. Uh, you have a clover trail that runs through your property, and it's designed in a yeah. specific way as to pull the deer from the south to the north. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So the way my property is set up, it's, um, in, so we hunt a couple of different properties. This is the one that's behind my house. It's 36 acres and the orientation of kind of the, the, the layout of it is it runs north to south. It's a rectangle. It's about 225 yards wide. So it's not very wide. 
but it's about 880 yards long. So it's a, a long skinny piece and the neighboring hunting pressure, most of it is on the south side of my property. And I want to make sure that the deer, if I have any influence whatsoever, I want them to be moving from the south to the north. There's a lot of bedding on the southern half of my property and they can move kind of west to east, east to west from my property to my neighbors. And then we have kind of a hay field that's right in between our properties that they kind of go off into at night. And I really wanted to draw the deer from the south end of my property to the north end of my property just to kind of get them away from my neighbors, just to eliminate any chance of them shooting deer that I don't want targeted. Now that doesn't always happen. It's the deer are wild animals. They're never gonna follow the script 100%, but you just wanna to try to influence the movement as much as possible. And so what I did is I planted most of my food plots on the north half of my property so that when they, those deer get up from their beds, they start moving to, to those like more secluded food plots where they feel safer. They're kind of in cover and then they can kind of, you know, move north to, through my property and then, then shoot off to the hay field away from my neighbors. And one thing that I kind of did to almost steer the deer down these trails is I created a clover trail. So it's, it's not really that wide. It's about eight feet wide. So if, if you can drive like an ATV down this trail, that's probably just as wide as you want to make it. And then I, uh, I planted two sections of it at different times. So last year I planted a section and all I did was I, I sprayed it a couple times during the summer with glyphosate 2,4-D, which is 2,4-D is like your broadleaf weed killer. It's, it's heavy duty stuff. So it's, it's going to kill almost anything except for grass. And then your glyphosate will kill your grass. But uh, so I, I hit it a couple times in the summer just to make sure there was no weed growth. And then I just threw a bunch of um, clover down. It just went to the uh, local co-op, the local farmer's elevator. I grabbed ladino clover and then sp sprinkled that down. It went pretty heavy around Labor Day. And then it wasn't much for this for the first season because with clover a lot of times clover wants to work on its root system the first growing season and so it puts on a little bit of leaf growth but most of the energy is going down into the ground and it's working on that root system and so it doesn't really look that great the first time you plant it but in the spring with, with spring green up that thing just exploded it was, it was pretty cool that section of clover and then this year I planted a, a longer section. I basically con I was basically connecting food plots along the way from the south, from the, from the middle half of my property, more north towards the more destination food source and shooting them off to this hay field. Um, I planted it. I just used my ATV. I used a, a disc a drag and a lawn roller just to kind of prep the seed bed. And then I used Ladino clover and Dutch clover this year. But the the, the mindset behind the clover trail was to basically take these deer from their bedding areas, get them on this trail and move them north to other food plots. And then eventually they'll kind of filter off into this destination food source. And if you can have multiple food plots along the way, that just kind of one, it separates these deer from each other. So there's not as much stress on your property. Like if you just have one big food plot and if all the deer on your property are in there, there's the stress levels just a lot higher and you're, you're not going to be able to hold as many deer on one property. So if you can separate these deer, you can have a better chance of holding more 
doe families, and that's just less stress. You'll have more opportunities for bucks to bed on your property. And so if you can just spread these deer out with multiple food sources, and then I kind of connect them all with these clover trails, and it just creates a loop um, on the north half of my property, and then eventually they shoot off to a, um, a hay field, where I hope that they'll spend the rest of the night away from my neighbors. Um, trying to think right. if there's anything else. And no, that, my stand that, that's what I was hoping to get yeah. at. Um, and and you were, I think you were just about to say this, but you had you had kind of already like picked out where you wanted your stand locations, so you made right. those trails based on like it wasn't just willy nilly. It was here's right. how I'm going to enter and exit this, and here's how I'm going to make this trail like line up perfectly with where I want this tree stand to be as well. So that if they do take this, like I'm not going to get busted or anything. Yes. So because my property is so narrow, oh, it's only 200 yards wide, 220 yards wide. I don't really have a whole lot of room to operate in the middle. So if I'm walking even just a hundred, about a hundred yards into my property, I'm halfway, I'm halfway in the middle. And so I have a pretty good chance that I'm going to spook something out. So most of my stands, are located probably within 20 yards of my property border and I'm facing in towards kind of like a, a sneak trail. So I'm not really looking at my food plot a lot. I'm, I'm looking at like these sneak trails that I made on the downwind side of my clover trails. So that's kind of another, I guess, layer on top of it. But there are some stands I have looking at the clover trail, um, but a lot of my stands are, are kind of just on the outside looking at like a sneak trail that a lot of, that these older bucks, like they will go on that clover trail, but if, if they're out searching for a doe and they haven't found one yet, they're more likely to be in the cover in this thick multi-floor rows, uh, just nasty stuff in this little hidden trail on the downwind side of this clover trail. And they're gonna go up and down my property that way. And then I'm downwind of that, getting a shot, at that sneak trail and some of the stands have a shot at the sneak trail and the clover trail it just kind of depends on which location sure. it is but no i found so that I, I found that to be extremely common is like even on ag fields like even if you're hunting ag fields or even like if you're hunting on public and you're hunting like around oak trees or something it seems like there is like the highway that the does and the young bucks will use and yep. that's like literally the field edge or, you know, the main yep. trail coming to and from, but these bigger bucks will use a trail that's a lot harder to see. And it's generally just like a couple, a couple deer will use them. And it's like, yeah, like you can you're barely see them, it. Yeah. And you're calling them sneak trails. I've never heard that before, but I I've, I've definitely experienced that where, you'll have, you know, 15 deer in one night or whatever come down this main drag and it's all young bucks and does. And then all of a sudden, yeah. like 15 yards past that in either some direction, that's where you're going to catch that bigger buck because he's, right. he's big because he doesn't hang around with everybody, right? He's got his own. Right. He, he's more cautious. He knows that that's not the safest way. You know, he knows right. like safety is his number one concern. I would say you know, nothing else even comes close. Safety is his number one, you know, rule. He's going to stay alive. 
And so he can't stay alive if he's taken my clover trail. He has to take the sneak trail or like the hidden trail down with the clover trail. Right. But if he's on a hot doe, like if there's a hot doe going through and he happens to be on her and he's just following her through my property, he's not going to leave her to take my sneak trail. He's going right. to stay on her butt the whole time and not leave her side. So sure. that, that's where you want a shot to the clover trail too, because the doe is not going to take the sneak trail. The doe is going to take my clover trail and browse along the way, all the way down to the next food plot, all the way down to the hay field. And then, and then he'll follow her. But if he's by himself and he's just out cruising, searching around, like he's going to be most likely on the sneak trail. Sure. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. So moving on to like, the reason I wanted to talk about that was you designed a property in a sense to pull the deer from the South to the North, which are pulling them from the, from the neighbors. So there is a method to the madness when you guys sit down to, to look at a piece of property and you want to like plan it out. There's, there's a, there's a reason you do everything you do. So don't like, I have friends that just like, Oh yeah, I made a food plot over here. Okay, cool. Well, how are you going to access and enter that access and exit it? And they're like, I don't know. I haven't thought about that yet. It's just a good spot for a food plot. Well, why the hell is it a good spot if you can't hunt it with a good, with any sort of wind? Like it's not, then that's no good. Then you have a food source and you got to figure out where the, where the trails are coming in and out in order to hunt it. And you got a better hope that you can set up on one of those somehow. So pre-planning all that stuff and sitting down and really taking your time to think through all that will, will go a long way. There's a lot of variables. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you find with your trail cameras, a lot of those, uh, a lot of those clover trails are being used by does? By does? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of the clover trails are used by the does and even, even the sneak trails will be used by like those, those trails off the clover trails will be used by does. But for the most part, like during the rut, it's bucks. The bucks are running back and forth and I'll have, I have a mock scrape. I'm kind of um, an intersecting trail. So I have a trail that runs north and south of my property. And then there's one that comes in from the neighbors um, east to west through my property. And so there's a big intersection right there. I, I hung a mock scrape right there. And that's where I put my camera. And you can just see those bucks running side to side, north to south uh, during the rut. So gotcha. it's it's definitely heavily used. Uh, the sneak trails are heavily used and, and, the, and the, the does use the clover trails more, the doe families. Sure. So you can see kind of walking down the clover trails towards the hay field at night or, or yeah, in the afternoon. And a lot of times you, you get them coming back in the morning. Like a lot of times those are nighttime pictures too. Like if they come back early, they're coming in at night. Sure. But, yeah. Like 4am, 3am kind of coming back to their yeah, bed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you you mentioned like that that mock scrape. Do you find mock scrapes and rubs to be effective at all in the early season, or are they kind of more of a pre rut? So I I think that they're probably good anytime. So rub, rubs, I'm not sure. Um, I don't really pay much attention to to like I I love I love scouting rubs like historical rubs like okay this is where this deer has been has been moving over time especially like if you see like a, a tree that's you know, it's obviously grown and the, the bucks aren't rubbing that tree, but you can see old rub sign on it. And you know that this is an area that the deer are staging in. This is, a, this is a, definitely an area that they're moving through just naturally. And so I, I do like to key in on that. So if you see a trail 
like that's beaten down and there you just see rub rubs along the way it's like okay well there's a lot of historical sign here so that you know this area in general is a good area like they're going to continue to use the same trails you know generation after generation you know for a reason whether it's topography whether it's ed habitat edge what have you they're going to continue to use the same trail so that's where i would look at kind of rubs it, it might not be like that season there's a rub there but historical signs so if you can have you know rubs in the same area every year that's where i would look at that but scrapes like yeah like i don't know like i, I like hunting scrapes all the time especially after like a rain event because then those deer are going to come back and, and check their scrapes. But I, I think hunting a scrape in, in the early season is, is fine. I mean, obviously hunting them during the pre-rut and the rut, you're going to have higher odds because those bucks are going to be checking those scrapes and working those scrapes a lot more. But deer use scrapes all the time. It's not just like, that's one thing you'll notice when you, when you hang cameras on a scrape is if you, if you keep them going, you know, f for the entire year, they're not just using them during the rut or the second rut or hunting season. They're using these things all year long. And that's something that, you know, maybe new hunters might not understand is I would, the best way to describe a scrape is think about like when you're walking your dog and then he always has to check that fire hydrant at the end of the road, right? He has to <laughs> sniff the fire hydrant yeah. and pee on it. Like that, that's kind of what those deer are doing too. The, those dogs are just communicating with one another. Like, Oh, there's so-and-so he peed on this, uh, hydrant so I'm going to leave my sign too that's what those those deer are doing you know and they're not really necessarily peeing in it in the off season they're more just rubbing their pre-orbital gland on it and their forehead gland on it and then and they're just depositing scent and that's just their way of kind of talking to one another and I mean I don't understand I guess the the, the depth of the communication but that's kind of what they're doing is they're they're communicating with one another and they're using scrapes whether it's a mock scrape or whether it's a natural scrape they're they're just that's kind of how they communicate with the rest of the deer herd. Sure. When you set up and I, I fully like, I agree with all that. I think that uh, certain scrapes are better than others, depending on the time of year. Like I have like, like there's annual scrapes um, where that are open year round and there's just scrapes that are made during the pre-rut and might be open next year and might never be open ever again. Um, right. depending on the deer. So like keying in on those scrapes that you've seen year over year over year in the exact same spot is, right. yep. is good. Um, and then do you ever like, have you ever come across a scenario where there's like too many scrapes on a field edge and you decide to cut like a bunch of branches down to make it just one or two scrapes? Have you ever thought about uh -huh. that? I've, I've heard that concept before. I have never done it. So here's, I, I get the idea behind it. So the idea behind that is if you have a scrape that's in front of your stand and you want that buck to definitely check that scrape in front of you, then you remove every other scrape in the area because then that deer is going to come to your scrape as opposed to those. And, and I get the, the mindset behind it. I get the logic. Uh, for me, I want those deer to kill as much time on my property as possible. Like sometimes that's going to mean that he's going to spend too much time at that other scrape and I'm not going to get the opportunity, you know, but he's also not going to give my neighbor an opportunity. And here in Michigan, I want that deer <laughs> to spend as much time on my property as humanly possible. So I am, I am not going to remove 
any scrape on my property. It, it's going to stay there. That makes sense. That, kind of yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I have. It's so, a good way to think about like, it. I get, I, I get it. I have a. I have a friend. I have friends on different sides of the fence there. So one of them is like, dude, if he's on this. He, if, if he hits this scrape and then he hits this other scrape, you need to put like three scrapes between the two and two more scrapes or three more scrapes on the ends of them. So you have a line of like eight to 10 scrapes because right, yeah. if he hits all of them, he's spending two to three minutes at every single one. If you only have two, yeah. that's six minutes. If you have 10, yeah, that's kind of that's 20 minutes. Line right? of scrapes. Yeah, he's like, that's yeah. 20 minutes on your property versus four minutes. Like, that's better odds right. for you. And I have another friend who's like, he looks at it and he's like, you know, there's nine scrapes on this field edge within 80 yards. So there's pretty much one every like 10 yards or less. He's like, I'm yep. trimming all these down to just the one on the end because that's the one that I want them to, to hit. And that's the one closest to the yep. tree stand. And I And I don't want... I don't want bucks to pick and choose which one to go to because he's yep. like, they might, they might not, they only might hit scrapes one, four and nine and not two, six and eight. Right. So he goes, I don't, I just want them to go to this one. So he's trimmed them all back. Um, yeah. And I don't know, like, I don't know how it's going to work out for either of them. I, I haven't dabbled in either of them. So I was just curious as to, to your thoughts just because I mean, even on like, you can make scrapes. I've made mock scrapes on public land. I've done it multiple times and I've had, yeah. I've had a, I've had success with cameras on mock scrapes on public land. So it's not like a, a, a massively foreign concept. And I think you can be effective with it. Oh you yeah. Just have to I, would, I would say both scrapes. of your friends are right. You know, they're both yeah. right. It just depends on what they're trying to accomplish you know, yeah, what's your goal? I would agree. And, and my, my goal, I want to shoot that deer, but I definitely want to make sure that a lot of the deer on my property make it to next year. And so there's, there's probably only a few deer on this property that I'm going to be targeting this year, but there's a lot of deer that I'm going to be passing on. And then, so if I can have a lot of those deer that I'm passing on, just kill time on my property as, as much as possible before they go off somewhere else, that just gives the whole area a better chance of having older deer in the future. But, but, no, yeah. but I, I also get the other side of it. Like if, if you have scrapes all over the place and we don't have scrapes all over the place, but I, but like if you have, you know, if you cut all your limbs down along the field edge and you only have that one limb or maybe you plant a scrape tree in front of your stand, if you're hunting a food plot, those deer are going to have to go there instead to get, right. you know, to make a scrape and so that's just that's going to increase your odds of, of yeah. getting you know a shot opportunity so yeah they're they're both right it just depends on what your goal is so a lot yeah. of the stuff with habitat management like there's there's different concepts like there's high hinge cuts low hinge cuts you know cut your scrapes down leave a bunch of scrapes there's a lot of different ways to do a lot of this stuff we're all doing the same things but there's definitely yeah, different mindsets, but I would say yeah. it depends on your goals. Like, what are you, what are you actually trying to do? Yeah. I, I, I would, I would agree with that. And, and then it's also like, I think people get caught up in it. And this is a, a huge pet peeve of mine is like 
when people say like, what's the best broadhead or what's the best bow or what's the best arrow or what's the best scrape strategy or what's the best hinge cut strategy. It's all so relative to your property yeah. in your condition. Like it, it, it really is. And I, and I think the only way you can really do that is, is by trying stuff out. You yeah. Know? You just got to experiment in, in right. like, really it's, you're to, to simply you got to simplify it down you're trying to create secure high stem count like fall bedding cover and you're trying to create some sort of a food source if you have enough property you can make the destination food source on your property if not then you're trying to create these staging plots these micro plots you know pass through plots your more your kill plots on your property and you're trying to just move deer from the bedding to the like the food source like what do you hunt on yeah. public land you know you're trying to find the food source and you're trying to find where the deer are bedding you're set up setting up in between right know? so they really, private you can just like kind of manipulate that a little bit yeah, don't overcomplicate it that's the, yeah. if you want to simplify <laughs> it down as much as possible that's what it is right. it doesn't you don't have to really overcomplicate it people try to make it seem like it's rocket science but it's I don't know. <laughs> no and i yeah i i definitely agree um now that you lay it out that way, it's like, yeah, I guess like it doesn't matter what, as long as there's bedding, like there's bedding and the deer and that if it's better than anything else in the area, like that's the place to go. Right. right. So you it's, mentioned, really good bed, you know, really yeah, good bedding and you don't pressure it. You can't pressure it. So they stay there. Then you're going to have an advantage over someone who is not, or you know, hunting carelessly and is, bumping deer or doesn't have their property set up correctly then you know you're definitely gonna yeah. have an advantage but so one of the things that we talked about before we got on the podcast um was bedding you had mentioned that you you found natural bedding areas and then you made bedding enhancements um so then right. so walk walk me through like what the standard or, or the native or natural bedding area looks like and then what you do to enhance it so or how you found them i should say so yeah if i found them uh kind of by accident so when we first bought the property we bought it on halloween well that was like the, our moving day was halloween so actually like peak rut right yeah. and so we could have had two different scenarios there you know go back there and throw up stands hunt it hard first year and then see what we see or just kind of let it sit we chose to kind of let it sit i did hunt it twice and the first time i hunted i saw a couple bucks one i would have shot but he didn't get close enough and then i sat in like there's only one stand that i knew was there it was like a previous ground blind that the owner that we bought it from had built and so that's where i went i waited for a cold front to go through went to this ground blind and sat there and i and I knew it was messy. So I brought a trash bag, I cleaned it out. And I, I sat again, like three weeks later. And then I, when I went there though, there was like cigarette butts, a bottle of water and stuff like that in the ground blind. And so I knew <laughs> there were two things could have happened. You know, I'm not going to say that someone was trespassing because I could have just missed those things, I guess, when I was cleaning out this ground blind or someone came in knowing that it was sold or maybe a previous person that had permission to hunt that property didn't realize the property was sold and hunted that blind in between when I was there and you know the three week time when I didn't hunt it um 
So regardless, that kind of like set me off a little bit. So I went and bought a bunch of no trespassing signs. <laughs> and I just like went up and down the property line, just every tree with a sign. And then while I was doing that, I kicked out two bucks out of these two different bedding areas. And so that was just like visual confirmation. Like I hadn't been back there at all. So I didn't know what it looked like. I just remember seeing these two bucks jump out of these two areas. Like, okay, those were bucks. Whoops. And then just kept going. And then later in the season when we actually did some scouting, they're kind of on these um, points. It's not, I wouldn't really call it a ridge, but because we don't really, it's not the topography. There's not that much of an elevation change, but if it, it, they're kind of like points on a ridge. And then okay. they're just, what happened is I think there were either the previous landowner did a select cut in these areas or just the trees fell down. And then maybe 20 years ago, there was a bunch of kind of like shrub trees, this garbage kind of came up. And then um, a bunch of grapevines just grew up in like this canopy. And so that's kind of what they're in right now is just like this closed canopy, like it's like witch hazel. There's some witch hazel in there. It's like a shrub tree. And this, this, these grapevines are grown where it just creates this dense dome in there. And there's a bunch of them. And there's three separate bedding locations that are like that. Uh, it's, um, it's a south facing slope on these ridge points. And so like these deer love to bed there in one it's south facing they're in these little valleys. They just, they love it. And, um, so to enhance it, there was a couple blowdowns that were kind of blocking. They, they really only had one way in and one way out. And so a deer wants to have multiple ways in and out of his bed. That way, in case a predator is coming from one direction, he has a way to get out the other. Right. And they could have gotten out the other way just a little bit hard. So I just made it a little bit easier for them. So I kind of just cut little, not very big, like just like little trails into those bedding areas from multiple directions. Just so those deer, when they're in the center, they have multiple ways in and out. They can just sneak out. Like I don't, I want to make sure that like if I'm trying in there to hunt them, like on top of them, they can get out of there and I'll never know they were there. You know, I want them to make sure that they know that's the safest place to be on my property, hunt them there. But if I wanted to, like they would be ever, they'd be able to get out every time right? without me knowing. And you're, I want them to make sure. That they yeah. Know. And you're almost playing like a, a, a Russian roulette game there on whether or not they're going to come towards you with, with that, with, with additional entry and exit routes, you know, rather right. than only yeah. three, three options. Now they have, you know, five or six. But at the same time, yeah. you're kind of playing the long game of, well, I have good bedding up here. I have good doe bedding. I have good food. Like, I'm really hoping that he takes either exit route one or two to come to me, but he might take yeah. exit yeah. route three or four and might go the other way. It yeah. just is what and it I, is. I, and... Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. I, I wanted to give him, you know, his options. I wanted him to feel as safe as possible. So he chooses that location. I'd rather have him bedding on my property you know, in, in this really secure spot than betting on my neighbor's property. Right. So already the odds are a little bit in my favor. And then also like, I got a lot of betting. Um, I, again, most of my food plots are kind of towards the North half of my property. And typically those does, if you give them a place to be, they're going to want to be by that food. And then a lot of that has to do with the fawns. Those fawns are eating like crazy all the time. They're trying to put on weight for the winter. So I think mom has to always be by those fawns and she puts them as close to food as possible. So those does, if you give those does a place to be, then those bucks, 
can be in the, in the next best place or, you know, they're going to take the best place. So I, I give right. the Doe's a good spot, but then those bucks are going to want to kind of filter in. Got so, it. And they're going to want to go up to those does to check those doe bedding areas during the rut. So hopefully yeah. if I do it correctly, then those bucks are going to exit towards the food plots because that's where they know one, there's does two, there's food, there's water that way. So I try to give them everything that they want to move towards on the North half. Gotcha. So do you ever, for any reason, make them bigger or smaller? those bedding areas once the bedding, you find the bedding locations um or do you just I haven't them? I, I haven't on this property uh i i what what i would probably do is make just multiple satellite beds so okay. if I, I i found it i found a couple buck beds in like more of a low area so i'm, I'm not going to really touch the beds on these ridge points they're they're separated enough they're probably like 45 50 yards away from each other each one of these thick areas and but then you can go probably a hundred yards south and then you start finding a few more satellite beds there's two more satellite thick buck beds south but there's so much room down there that i can make more of them so i wouldn't necessarily make the individual bedding areas bigger but i would make more satellite beds on the south end of my property gotcha. just to give him as many options as possible and then you could probably if you have enough of them you might even be able to jamming a couple more bucks down there because I, sure. I i think that if so, some people will say like you can't have more like you know, more than one old buck on one property but if, 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 if their chance if their chances are getting shot by the neighbor or being able to sit on your property and be relatively safe i think they're going to take that option you know they're they're going to tolerate each other yeah i, I know think that's they'll, they'll uh... tolerate getting close to does like some people say they won't sit by does I think they'll sit by does. We're, we're, our property up north, there's a bedding location. It's, it's probably 10 acres of dogwood, willow, just nasty stuff. And that's where a lot of deer hang out. It's just in that one 15 acre or 10 to 15 acre area. And it's the, the, there's a bunch of bucks in there and there's a bunch of does in there. Now they might be positioned differently within that bedding area, but they're all in there together. Right. Um, so if I were somebody that had a property and I have a lot, a lot of just mature, mature growth, I don't have a whole lot of underbrush going on. Yep. What do I need to do to create that bedding style area, like a bedding area? Sunlight. You need sunlight. So the one thing that you can do is cut trees down. Like if you burn wood for the winter, just go back. It's easier for us because we live here. But so if you don't live at your property, if it's farther away, you might want to contact a forester. That would be my first recommendation is, is contact a forester because what they can do is actually bid out jobs because they have a lot of connections for with loggers. And so they're going to, they can, like a forester is going to take a little bit of the, a little bit of the money, you know, because he, he's, he's working for you. Like he's going to take a little bit of the, the, the check, but he's also going to find you the best price, right? Like if you just call a logger, he's going to give you a certain price but if, but i guess if you know all the prices you can shop yourself but it's kind of like having a realtor for buying a house yeah he's going to help you with the negotiation process along the way that's kind of what a forester is and he the forester knows the trees like he'll say oh you have this you have this this is worth a lot right now you know this isn't really worth that much they're just gonna make pallets out of that or or you have this you know that's really hot right now so 
I would recommend getting a forester. And then what you do is you just, just tell them what your plan is. You want to make pockets. So you'll just like cut out, get a select cut, and then in one area, maybe get a little bit of a clear cut. And if there happens to be some younger trees in there, leave the younger trees. And then you could maybe hinge cut them around in a certain way to just to create bedding cover. But over time, that, that clear cut area, you know, three, three to five years, that's going to grow up just from the sunlight hitting the floor and you're going to have a dense area. And then you can come in and just mow a trail, you know, kind of position it to where it's going to go by your stand. Like you said, like you, you want the exit to be positioned towards your stand. So then you can kind of mow that trail from the bedding area towards your stand, but you need to have the sunlight to even have the regrowth. Right. So that's, okay. So that, that, that's a, that's a very common thing I, I would say with a lot of properties is they don't get managed for timber. People want to hunt on them and they, they, they see the park effect and they think it's beautiful, which it is. And, but it, it but it just, it's a deer desert. It like doesn't hold any deer. Yeah. No, that's a great way to call it the park effect. And that's something I'm working on with my own dad. Like, so my dad wants all the underbrush gone. And he wants it to look beautiful on our property. And I'm like, he wants to see because if, if the underbrush right. is gone, he can I'm like, <laughs> no, no, I don't want that because no deer is going to live there. Absolutely. Like they don't feel safe at all in that. So no. why would we ever, it's, why would we get rid of that? It's almost as bad as an open field. It's almost, almost, yeah. it's not as bad, but it's almost as bad. Right. So we're not going to stop. So one other thing you, you said, but without like really saying is, bedding areas can be like all different sizes like from a quarter acre or just like you know this the size of like a house footprint right or it can be as yep. big as like 15 acres where it's just like man anywhere in here like don't go in there right. just hang around the outside of this whole area how do you yep. how do you figure that out or how do you de decide like how big you want it to be like if you're how big to one, make one I probably wouldn't make it 15 acres, mainly because <laughs> like, if I was to make it myself, one, that's yeah. a lot of work. Uh, yeah. Two, like, like you said, it's harder to, I don't know, encourage the movement. Because that's what you're, you're trying to, when, you're, when you own your own property and, you're, and you have the tools to, to do all this stuff, you're trying to basically encourage these deer to bed here and then move this way to food. And if you have 15 acres, I mean, in, unless you want to just put aside 15 acres and just know you're never going to be able to hunt in that area, that's, that's not necessarily a, a bad idea. Like if you just, if you, but if you have a ton of property and you can make like say, you know, satellite beds around it, but yeah, I, I wouldn't make a bedding area 15 acres. I would make it maybe three to five acres and then, okay. then, then wait a little bit and then three to five acres. And, and these will be more your doe bedding locations closer to food and then you want to have smaller like a house like you said a house footprint for maybe your for your buck bed and then within that area he has different kind of beds within his little bedding area but what's what would separate the difference like why would does use one versus the other in bucks see i i would say like the, the does and this is one thing you'll read about a lot too like if, if you just read a lot of like the QDM magazines or anything like that, or, or just you, you, after the season, if you start scouting, you'll start noticing all the doe beds are, are really close to food. And if you walk those tracks back, like those bigger tracks, you start walking those back, they're going to be kind of off by themselves. And so those, 
not all the time. Sometimes those bucks will be bedded with those does, but not all the time. A lot of the times, if you give them their, if you're not, if they're not pressured and they can bed where they want, those bucks are going to be bedded a little bit further away and in, in kind of like the safest spot. So they're going to be bedded on that point on that ridge. They're going to be or the, like the military crest of a hill where like the wind's coming over their back. They're sitting yeah. on a, on the hill. They got cover to their back and they can have a little bit of a view in front of them. That would be like the ideal spot for a buck. And so if you can, if you have hills, like you have hills on your new property, if you can create that on your property and give them multiple options. So if you have like a ravine, put one on both sides. That way he can have that wind coming over his back on one side. And if, it, if the wind changes, he can just go to the other side of the little ravine and sit over there. Right. But like those does, they'll, they want to sit closer to food again, because I, I think that those fawns want to eat constantly because they're just growing and they're trying to put on weight for winter. And so that, and they're, they're, they're eating all the time. Like we've all sat on field edges. Like what's the first deer you ever see come out to the food plot? It's, it's the, the fawns. fawns. Yeah. It's the fawns. It's always the fawns. Like, and, and like what will happen is like, you'll, you'll get there at your stand, you know, two thirty, three o'clock, and then you'll sit down, you'll, you'll get your strap on or whatever. You'll look out in the field and there's a fawn right there. Holy cow. There's already a deer right there. And then, you know, he or she will go back in the cover and then they'll pop back out 30 minutes later. They'll go back in then they'll pop back out and then mom will come out, you know? So she's right there. She's just not, she doesn't need to eat as much. She like, right. I don't know. Maybe that's completely off base, but that's just what I think. I think. No, no, just... I literally had it happen last night. I did an observation sit on the side of a hill kind of overlooking like a, a, a swampy area that had multiple kind of like tree islands in it is a lot of dogwood. Yeah. Right. A lot of dogwood, a lot of just tall grass, a lot of cattails. And then there were like these poplar patches and I didn't okay. know which one I wanted to go to. And it was going to be a, a, to be honest, it was going to be a shit walk to go to any of them. So I was like, well, why <laughs> yes, don't I just, sure. yeah, why don't I just sit here on this like hillside and watch all three of them tonight? and see if anything comes like I maybe something will come my way like that'd be cool um but either way I'm gonna figure out which one of these the deer like and then I'll be able to key in on it and I had seven I had seven does come out of one of those islands so one set of does went left one went right and one came at me the one that did come at me was a fawn but all all of them the first deer I saw, even though it was like tall grass was fawns. They were, right. they were up and, and I saw them, one of them, they were there, they had, a, it was twins and they were playing around. Right. So they were just out yeah. running through the grass cause they hadn't been pressured at all. So yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Like it's always the fawns. And so then I was just watching, honestly, I didn't see, I was expecting there were like, there were three, all these does came out of the middle one. And I was going to hunt the far left one. So I didn't see anything out of the far left. And I kept watching it all night for a buck to come out. And I didn't see anything like no, no bucks. I didn't see any bucks at all. And he could uh, be in there. He could just be yeah. waiting. Right. That's he could have been. He could be in there. Right. Exactly. That's, okay. that's to my point. Yeah. Yeah. To my point he back could... in the beginning, like, I, I don't know why I didn't see him right? I don't know why I failed. Maybe he just didn't stand up yet. I have no idea. Um, yeah. I just assumed based on where, where we were and where I was that they would pop that, that furthest, it was the furthest back, most isolated one. 
was in the back left. But anyway, um, to your point, I saw the fawns right away. And uh, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. Um, if it's like that, like his, his only job is to stay alive. Right. Like he's right. a deadbeat dad. He doesn't care about those fawns. Like his only <laughs> job is to stay alive. Right. And like those does and those, you know, doe families and the fawns, they, they have to get those fawns ready to take their first winter. And right. So they're next to that food. They're, they're in good, they're in good bedding cover but they're not in as good a bedding cover as that old buck. Like he's going to find the best spot because right. he knows that that's his, that's his number one priority is to stay alive. Right. So I would say security is his number one thing. So if you can make like an impenetrable uh, spot for that deer on your property, that's probably where he's going to stay. Yeah. Oh, man. Give him everything he wants. And, but, but then that, yeah. that's good for, it's good for you and it's bad for you. It's bad because you can't really hunt him in his bed because you can't get in there, but it's good for you because you have an, you have a pretty good idea that he's going to be there. And that's yeah. half the battle is knowing he's going to start here. All right. Now, where is he going to go? Uh-huh. I, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then that's, that's where the food plots and the trails and, and kind of manipulating yeah, so you, the you property. Just connect, connect the dots. Right. Yeah. Right. Trying to connect them. And for bucks, it's almost in like a subtle way that they think like, Oh, this is the safest way, but really, Yep. Kind of like I'm leading you right to me, buddy. Yeah, that's the <laughs> yeah. It, that's a, if it all goes according to plan, but you know, a lot <laughs> has to go right. And again, yeah. it's a wild animal, and it can go anywhere it really wants to go. Yep. So yeah, for sure. Um, all right. Well, on that note, I think we're. I don't even know what time we're at. It doesn't give me a time on this thing. So, but we're at least an hour and a half in. Okay. <laughs> I know we're two hours into the two and a half hours into the phone call. So We're back into early season hunting. <laughs> yeah, right. No shit. Um, all right. Well, hey, tell people again where they can find you in the two different in the different areas with your different names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um if you want to find us on Facebook or Instagram, it's Whitetail Habitat Management. And then on YouTube and our website, it's Whitetail Evolution. We try to put out a video a week on YouTube, just kind of with habitat management strategies things that we're doing at the time just to try to stay relevant with what we're doing. Um, but yeah, if, uh, yeah, if there's anything that people want to see, just yeah, comment on the videos. We will try to put out um, what people want to see if they, if they have questions. So, or if you have anything particular that you want to see, I'll try to cover it in the video. For you. <laughs> uh, thank you. Direct line to the video, man. That's um, right. Sweet. Yeah, for sure. I'll be taking you up on that. Um, all right. Well, yeah. Thanks for being on Jake. Really appreciate it. And, um, for everybody else, uh, this is the last episode of the early season series. So we, this is our ninth episode. Um, we're done with the early season now. So if you did like this stuff, if you wanted to, if you want to hear more about it, you want to whatever, stay in touch with us, uh, subscribe and please give us a, a review. Uh, really appreciate that. That helps, that helps the podcast ranking in terms of like when it shows up on a search and stuff like that. And then the next podcast coming out, we will be for pre-rut and the rut. And we got some great guests on that. Again, we're probably going to have, haven't nailed them down yet, but the hunting public again, um, we got uh, Bo Martonic from East meets West. We got Scott Spitzley, who's a cameraman for contract but he he works a lot with the real tree road trip so he's got a lot of great info 
and then Michael Hunsucker from Heartland Bowhunter. So there's going to be some great stuff coming on here um, over the next few weeks. And uh, thanks again for tuning in, guys. Catch you later.